Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. And I am Di, the long-suffering wife of the owner of the records, and actual owner of some of the records. <laughs> and host of the show. <laughs> this is episode 11, History, America's Greatest Hits by America. As the name implies, today's record is a greatest hits collection that documents the career of folk rock band America up to the year of 1975, a long and storied career that began in 1970. There is a lot to unpack in any discussion of greatest hits records, especially one that documents a five-year career, and there is a whole lot to discuss in terms of how we might feel about this band and this recording. But before we get into the discussion phase of the episode, I just want to run quickly through the career of America. America is a colloquial name for the western hemisphere of the planet Earth, which is itself the third rocky planet in the Sol system. It was named for Italian map maker Amerigo Vespucci over the course of the 16th century due to... Ben, no! S just, just stop. What? America the band. Oh. Right, right. The band America was originally composed of three friends who met at London Central High School namely Dewey Bunnell, Dan Peake, and Jerry Beckley. The members are the, all the children of U.S. Air Force servicemen serving at posts in England, where they discovered British invasion rock at its source, which I guess would just be British rock at that point. In any case, they began performing at local gigs around London and eventually were signed by the English branch of Warner Brothers in 1970. In this early classic stage of America, they were exceptionally prolific, putting out five albums between 1970 and 1975, despite constant touring and, along the way, moving to L.A. This all did not come without costs, however, as one member, Dan Peake, who was one of the key songwriters, became badly addicted to narcotics. Probably not coincidentally, the album sales began to slip. To try and boost sales, producer George Martin was brought in. Martin, who had a major hand in shaping the Beatles, encouraged the already extant tendency of the band America to try new and ambitious things. This had the unfortunate twin outcomes of not reversing the downward sales trend, while also making live concerts more complicated. It was in this context that Warner Brothers released the album that we are discussing today, History, America's Greatest Hits, by America, which is a crazy thing in terms of how careers usually work, but let's get back to that later. After 1977, Dan Peake left the band. His recovery from narcotics had turned him into a born-again Christian, which did not really fit with the other two band members. There's a lot to say here about how the United States does drug treatment and rehab, but that's another show. In any case, he went on to become a somewhat successful Christian rock artist, which I suppose is somewhat better than dying of drugs, and it's nice that his recovery didn't doom his career entirely. Heartwarmingly, it also didn't destroy his friendship with the rest of the band, who sat in as session musicians and background vocalists on many of Peake's recordings in his Christian years. In any case, after Peake left, the band continued, cycling through various additional personnel and producers in the process. They managed to have a few legitimate hits in the 80s, notably the soundtrack for The Last Unicorn, but by the middle of the decade, they were down to only one original member, Jerry Beckley, and apparently tried to make the transition over to synth rock, it didn't go well. Um, I can probably best describe this album as an easy listening version of The Police. It's not aggressively bad, it's just aggressively not good. One good thing came out of this album. During the recording process, they brought on one Bill Moomy as one of their studio musicians. For those of you out there who are sci-fi fans, Bill Moomy played Lanier in Babylon 5 which is one of my favorite shows ever, and is definitely a connection I did not expect when I started writing this episode. 
endearingly, they are still working with Bill Mooney to this day, as he has taken on some songwriting credits in some later albums, which we'll discuss in a moment. That said, there weren't that many more later albums. After their failed attempt to get into synth-pop, America basically stopped releasing real studio albums, but ramped up releasing greatest hits records and live recordings and touring, as it was making them a very tidy income. They would eventually become fixtures of the nostalgia rock circuit, a profession they maintain to this day. There is, however, one interesting asterisk in this denouement. In 2005, the last remaining original band member, Jerry Beckley, got a nice letter from one Adam Schlesinger. For those of you who do not know, Adam Schlesinger was the greatest Gen X songwriter that you never heard of. He did a ton of work as a contract songwriter for soundtracks and other industry work, but his greatest act was in helping to found the band Fountains of Wayne, in which he was one of the two principal songwriters. Despite technically being one-hit wonders, Fountains of Wayne had an amazing career producing some of my favorite indie power pop music of all time. They did this despite breakups, hiatuses, a completely uninterested billboard, and brushes with addiction from some of the other band members. Unfortunately, Schlesinger died of COVID-19 in 2020 at just 52 years old. But back in 2005, he was not dead, and he and Beckley got to corresponding, and it turned out that they were big fans of each other's work. They met and ended up writing a song or two together. Beckley enjoyed it so much that he began writing songs with other artists in that sort of indie rock liminal space of quality artists who don't really get the attention they deserve. Possibly inevitably, James Eha of the Smashing Pumpkins stood in as a producer for what quickly became an album's worth of weird material. The label was convinced to put the record out, but they kind of tried to hedge their bets. They decided that the entire thing would only work if they could appeal to both younger music nerds and older fans at the same time, and so the CD was packaged with two discs. One was the new music that had been recorded with those great other artists, and the second disc was a live version of none other than the tracks of History, America's Greatest Hits by America. And so we come full circle to yet another soulless cash grab from the label packed around what was a fairly nice little album. Seriously, it's pretty good. Link in the show notes. There's some fun stuff on there. Now then, I've been talking enough. So Di, what is your relationship with America in general, and in particular, with history? America's Greatest Hits by America. So I guess I should probably start with the fact that my parents owned a record store in the 70s. It's not as cool as it sounds. <laughs> I wish it was. Yeah. They closed the store the year I was born. So unfortunately, I didn't grow up. As a record store kid. Yeah, you know, living high fidelity or anything <laughs> like that. But uh, I mean, I kind of did grow up as a record store kid, though, because we just we had shelves built over our piano and they were just like filled with records. Slightly more than we have now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not yeah. too much. Like we do have a ton of records here now, but you know, and it was just it was never like frowned upon for one of us to just like grab out a vinyl mm -hmm. album and stick it on that record player, and like yeah. they weren't precious about that. Yeah, I mean, no one was uh, same for me growing up. Like no one thought to be precious about records at the time. It was like, yeah, they, yeah, were... they can break, but we can just buy another one. Yeah, they're so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although by the time I was like a teenager, yeah, yeah, it was like a different. Records were very. They, they were just starting to yeah be made again i mean i guess they never stopped making them entirely like there were always bands yeah. that were, were putting them out but um, they, they hadn't become like a whole collector's market right it wasn't a hipster thing yet yeah. but i do remember finding a factory sealed pink floyd album <laughs> that uh when i was in college actually okay. and uh i was like in my parents' collection. I'm like, they weren't really big Pink Floyd fans, I should say. They were big Beatles fans. They were really big into more of the, like, Beach Boys. Right. And, like, early Beatles, Temptations, that kind of, like, very much the, like, harmony yeah, yeah. of a bunch of dudes singing usually about cars and girls. Yeah. Very... The classics. Yeah, heteronormative, weirdo, 70s <laughs> and 60s stuff. This record in particular, I'm fairly certain I bought it mm -hmm. 
for several reasons, one of which is that you don't buy Greatest Hits albums, and we, yeah. we should probably talk about that in, in a little bit. Yeah. But it's a Greatest Hits album, but it's not really. Like, it's an early on in their career. It's weird. It's it's a Greatest Hits album of the first five years of their career, yes. which is still ongoing to a certain extent. Arguably, it ended in the 80s with the, the synth pop album, but uh, they're still around. Their continuous career, yeah, I would say. And yeah, and it's usually, usually, so if you look at their discography in the 90s, it's all greatest hits and live albums. That's usually when greatest hits albums get generated. Yeah, when it's the nostalgia, yeah. like trying to capitalize on the nostalgia stuff, but... So it's like the record company thought that they were going to break up because of the narcotics thing and just cranked this thing out. Yeah, like, I honestly... My relationship with music from that era when I was younger was very much not delving into the history of the right. band. It was the most I probably did with that was the Beatles because I was such a huge fan. Right. Which was definitely an, an influence for my parents and the kinds of music that we played. One interesting thing that kind of segued from that, which kind of also is where my relationship with America, my, my dad got obsessed with collecting all of the Billboard right. top, the, the Billboard Hot 100 hits from every year back to when they first started it. And I probably should have prepared for this conversation by looking that up, but uh, <laughs> but I did not. So it was kind of funny. Like my dad, so at some point in the '90s, when it was like in high school, he moved his office into the unfinished side of our basement, and the finished side was was like our playroom. But right. we were all teenagers by then, so it was yeah. like. The Nintendo cave, kind of. <laughs> um, so it was just when you got to the bottom of the stairs, you could go to the left to the finish side and then to the right. Like my dad had his chair like right there. So like he could see when we came right. down the stairs too. So that was kind of lame. But uh, <laughs> so here's your fun little kid cave. Yay. It's a panopticon. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Basically. Yeah. My dad hated fun. Unless no. it was his... <laughs> his fun. His fun. But yeah, it was definitely really weird to be a high schooler and be like going downstairs to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go play some Dr. Mario. And then your dad is playing Britney Spears. <laughs> like that literally happened. Like he was like playing like the top Billboard hits of like the current time. And I was like... Okay, Dad, this is making you look a little, like, creepy old man. And he's like, oh, stop, whatever, it's not... I didn't put them at number one, or whatever, but I'm just like, yeah. Like, right now, it's all, like, boy bands, and, like, teeny bopper girls, and, like, Shakira, and all this <laughs> stuff. Like, this isn't a good look, Dad. Like, maybe, like, take it down a notch. <laughs> but, uh... America, not really a one-hit wonder. They they were yeah. on that list a few times. Although, I have to admit, this definitely isn't my era of music. And so, I really, really thought that Horse With No Name was written by <laughs> Willie Nelson until I sat down to do this project. Which is so weird, because the singer doesn't sound anything like him. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> no, like, he's got a really distinctive voice. That's why if uh, if people go to the to the show notes and listen to oh, yeah. the, like, the covers that they, they did in the, in the aughts, it's pretty interesting because there's, like, all of the guys. So, I mean, the, the whole reason they called themselves America mm -hmm. was because they were living in London. Right. And they didn't want people to think that they were trying to fake American accents <laughs> and be, like, American. Right. Because they actually were American. Right. Uh, they just were right. living in the UK. That is so funny to me because there are so many songs where they sound like they're trying to pronounce things mm -hmm. in an American way, <laughs> but it sounds wrong. Yeah. And it's just that they have, 
a transatlantic accent. Yeah, just very, time. like, odd diction yeah. uh, with their singing, which, I mean, could come from being, yeah. like, very technically instructed to do so. Like, I, I know for myself, being vocally trained in a choral setting, like, yeah. you end up singing in such a way where you're, like, <laughs> over-pronouncing things yeah. or giving off an accent that sounds strange. Yeah. Uh, at some points, so I could see that being a thing. Because the way they harmonize, I don't know for a fact, but it does seem to me like they were in choirs or, yeah, something, or something like that. It's interesting. How the, the harmony is, is a key part of, like, how they sound. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a big part of it. And it contributes, especially on this album, it creates this weird dichotomy because to me the harmonies and everything sound very british invasion slash beach boys kind of like that era early 60s pop music and then the music they're playing is mostly folk rock yeah it's very <laughs> joey like, mitchell yeah. very of the time big brother in the holding company yeah it's very of that time but it's also very not british invasion so it's this weird like early 60s late 60s early 70s mashup yeah that it's like more of the kind of stuff like i was saying that like my my dad really liked right like all of the people stealing r&b and turning it yeah. into pop and making it extremely white <laughs> uh i i definitely can tell a lot of like the influence that, that yeah. went into that and one thing that i have read about them as a band is that so, so like when their first album came out it was 1970 yeah. right and so that was when the beatles broke up right so they really wanted to lean into more of a beatles of that era sound yeah. and i think their More. their thing was they wanted to make a sergeant pepper right. style concept album that was like super weird <laughs> and they were like the studio yeah the, the manager that they were working with at the time was like yeah but you've got these great harmonies you should really kind of like lean into that and that was probably the best advice they got yeah it was probably not bad advice <laughs> i mean <laughs> the the world is littered with the corpses of unknown psychedelic rock bands yeah i mean their prog rock stuff isn't terrible i just i don't think the sudden sideways leap to go from that well i mean they tried it later and it didn't yeah work. i was gonna say they they tried to make their pet sounds yeah. and you know it, it kind of went for everybody the way yeah. that <laughs> that it went for pet sounds but one thing you mentioned prog rock and I, I wanted to get to this really quickly okay when i think of prog rock and this is entirely incorrect, but um, I always think of the geography bands. I was just thinking, you think of Boston. Boston, Kansas. So you just America. kind of like lump them in, in your brain. Yeah. I mean, I can understand that. It's like how my my brain will never separate Eve 6 and Lit, no matter what. Just like, <laughs> even now that... That the, the lead singer from U6 is like a meme factory on Twitter. It is yeah. like the greatest thing. Everybody should totally follow U6 on Twitter. You know, there's some bands that we just kind of lump together. And we, you mean know, saying like before, like, you know, the Temptations, the Four Seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And early Beatles. Like that wasn't, they weren't contemporaries. Like that's not. Yeah. The Barbershop Rock Bands. Yeah. It's, and, uh, and one soul band. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah like i definitely had my dad's music collection was mm -hmm. probably something that would be out of your worst nightmare because you'd have <laughs> all kinds of like these compilations or like beach rock hits for the summer or whatever right. uh, because he was like oh i've been trying to get that track right. for my collection right right the other thing to say is the distaste for greatest hits albums amongst hipsters like me is a relatively <laughs> recent thing. Wanting to get past the corporate cash grabs and get to the authentic documents as released by the band kind of thing. Um, right. You know, the, the greatest hits things are often these cheap cash grabs where they take a B-side that had already been released and shove that on there and then act like it's new material. 
that said, in the 60s and 70s, like, there's a real value proposition there, because music was expensive. We grew up in an era of music deflation. Yeah, I, I grew up paying two bucks for, for records, and then now everyone just gets it f- effectively for free from streaming services and everything. As an editor's aside, I'm 24, and I've literally never bought a piece of music once in my life. Well, I mean, but, we, we also were growing up in a time where you could buy a, a single on a cassette or even on a seat. Not many people yeah. bought actual singles. If you did, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> discounting you. But like, it was right at the cusp. Like, we have enough of an age difference between us yeah. that like our exposure to the internet was slightly different. Yeah. But it was enough of like, my entire high school experience wasn't online. Right. We didn't have social media. Everything was dial-up internet. Twenty-eight-eight or fifty-six. Yeah, I'm. I'm not one hundred percent sure. We could look <laughs> that up, but like, it was a point of pride for the university that I went to that they had Ethernet right. connections in the dorms. Right. Like, we've got cable internet, guys. Yeah. This is the new millennium. Like. <laughs> It's all new, but yeah, from day one, like we got our computers hooked up and everybody was talking to each other about what's the best programs to download, to set up and and download music for free. And it took hours, right? just so long to get a song sometimes, like 14, 15 hours, you would just start to download a song overnight. And if you were lucky and didn't get a virus... (laughs) <laughs> well, you were doing that. So at the same time this was going on, the record industry was trying to sell albums for $25. Yeah, rolls. it was like getting worse and yeah. worse. But it, in an earlier era, there were people for whom a Greatest Hits album was a real value proposition, where The Clash talked about this with Magnificent Seven. They sort of were thinking of it as being its own greatest hits album. It's a record for people on oil rigs or (laughs) out in the jungle or something. So, I mean, greatest hits albums are like, I don't have the money to buy every single album by these guys. And I like what I like, or I I'm new to this band. I want an overview of them. Of course, with a project like this, I think it's pretty clear. I very much have a warts and all approach to a band. I, I don't want a band who only has one good song per record. <laughs> right, you want their bomb on the record to actually be listenable. Yeah. A big portion of that is also in, like, this weird fetishization of music culture and this quest for authenticity and everything that I've in- inherited from when we grew up. It is strange it, in general. As a concept, any band putting out a Greatest Hits album five years into their career is very <laughs> weird. Like, you know, I was thinking there is right right over there, we've got the best of the Beatles, the Apple Records, right. best of the usually just referred to as like the Red Album and the Blue Album. You've got the 1962 to 1966 version, yeah. and then you've got the 1967 right. to, to 1970 version. I, I got one of the ones that we have, at least, because at the time when I went online to try and research, like, what is the Beatles' first album? Like, it was really, <laughs> like, not clear, and I wasn't sure if there even is a universally agreed upon this is the first thing that we can call an album. So well, there I, is an album that it has printed on the front of the record. This is the Beatles' first album, <laughs> but that isn't a deep dive we can go into if you ever get to the B section of yeah. your <laughs> record collection. The longer you we can, talk, you can the invite me be. back. Yes, you will definitely um, <laughs> be invited back for the Beatles. Uh, there will, the Beatles scholar of the house. There will at least be one crossover conversation for the Beatles. I don't think I'm going to. Ha- have you on for every single one of the Beatles albums that I have. You should do just a mega episode of, like, the Beatles. Uh, no, no. But I, <laughs> I, it is it is a question of how I'm going to deal with, like, the Beatles and The Clash and the Mighty Mighty Boston's, which, the fact that those and are the not three... not a surf. Yeah, not a surf. Well, not a surf is easier because I have a lot of albums by them, but they're all standalone albums because not a surf is my people and they do things the right way. <laughs> Whereas the clash has super black market clash is a greatest hits album, but a ton of work went into it. 
and it's curated by people associated with the band, actually, and not some soulless record executive, to say something about The Clash's career. So it's like, there is actually a point in me owning it, but then that means I have records that overlap in the material that they are covering, and then I've got like eight of them. bands that had broken up or had broken contracts or whatever that like tons of cash grabs from different yeah. labels who who were just like oh well we we still own the rights to to all of this music so we can we can just put a bunch of them together and then sell yeah. this album for 10 bucks and people will buy it because they're like oh i love that song turn 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 and yeah I remember this. and It was an era where the economics of the production of the physical unit had become incredibly cheap, but the public perception of it was still incredibly expensive. Right, because so. we equated like a CD with what they were charging for like a brand new album, which, right. you know, even with current times inflation, like you can buy a brand new album on CD for less than you could yeah. in the mid 90s. Right. That's just wild, but <laughs> but it's partially because of, you know, the record industry, like pushing the, the limits a little yeah. too much on that and, and being like, oh, people will still buy this. Even the, if they had we... a decade of record profits based on re-releasing old material in terms of getting people to replace their records yes. with CDs and to a certain extent with tapes and then all these cheap cash grab now that's what I call music things. and Yeah, luckily my dad didn't end up getting all of those. <laughs> but like the now that's what I call music. He, he he would get like the weird stuff though. It was always those like, you know, yeah, like the surf tunes or like it'd be some kind of like really bad, very 90s style nostalgia, psychedelic, like mushroom <laughs> on the front and it's like groovy tunes your parents loved or whatever and my dad would just be like mm, your parents love this like this is my music <laughs> so that was like how i was exposed to a lot of this was over like being really into those cds and going on road trips with my family with our high tech 10 CD changer in the back of our van. Um, <laughs> that was not in the Ford Aerostar, but <laughs> that would have been really cool. Like my my dad would get into making like playlist CDs and right. like burning his own CD and starting out a road trip with uh What a know. nerd. It'd be <laughs> Podcast footnote. Part of the joke here is uh that Di and I exchanged mixed CDs as an early part of our courtship. Um, yeah. <laughs> End podcast footnote. 
No, like, obviously we did that. <laughs> These two. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it was, like, such a thing, but it was really funny that, like, my super stodgy, like, <laughs> never, like, relaxed kind of a dad was just like, yeah, I'm gonna put Born to be Wild in the first song in this track, so we, like, pulling out of the driveway, and everybody's like, yeah! Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> but it was fun! <laughs> Uh, it's a driving song. I'm not going to think about the lyrics any more than that. Yeah. Oh, no. No. Of course not. <laughs> Definitely not discuss them with my children. Uh, there was a big, like, disconnect between the kinds of music that were okay for us to listen to and the rest of, like, how strict our upbringing was, which is really weird to look back on now. Yeah. Like, it was super fine <laughs> to just be listening to all of this, like, drug rock yeah. and, and everything, as long as it was their music. Right. But if if they really listened to, like, the lyrics of, like, Semi-Charmed Life, they would have been like, burn this devil music! That's, <laughs> you're not listening to, to the satanic music anymore! Yeah, it was like that, you guys. But in terms of America, you know, it, it was just like one of these bands amongst a bunch that all kind of had that type of sound like yeah. you know the birds the association the turtles um <laughs> i know that's one of your favorites the turtles, turtles yeah. yeah people hate that i love them but i do so why did why did you buy this one why did I buy this? And not, like, a Turtles record or something. <laughs> Beyond, like, availability. It was, it, it was like, 95% availability, I would okay. say. I don't specifically remember buying this. Mm -hmm. I know for a long time, when we would go into a record store, I was trying not to look for things because... I didn't know, for, first of all, I didn't know, like, the albums that any of these songs right. were on, mm -hmm. because even if we did have them, that wasn't the, the stuff that right. my parents were playing a lot of. And also, they didn't have the kind of record player where you could rip records to right. digital files to then burn to CDs or just have on... Mm -hmm you know, on your computer at that time. So they were buying these like compilation albums and he had right. just hundreds of CDs with all of these different kinds of weird compilation albums, but they weren't rebuying on CD mm. the albums that they had on vinyl, unless it was something that was like in heavy rotation. Like I'm sure that members of my family <laughs> have purchased dozens of copies of Beatles Abbey Road at, sure. you know, this point in time, because it's like, as each of us like went off to college, like, well, I can't take the copy that we have at home, so right. I'm going to have to like buy my own or whatever, because that was like one that right. we listened to a lot. I definitely did not, like, I, I can't sit here and name off America's... <laughs> first few albums i think yeah. this is a this is a compilation of five albums yeah. or more like it's I five think, albums okay because i there was one point they put more than one out in a year but there are songs on here that i really don't like yeah oh yeah i do not like muskrat love at all <laughs> that is a weird one Mus it is really weird <laughs> muskrat love is very strange <laughs> not not my favorite but i would go so far as saying Sister Golden Hair would would yeah. probably be high up the list in, you know, my favorite songs, not just of theirs. Yeah, I enjoyed that one, actually. I it's should say, really good. I, I, I listened to this, like, three or four times in the preparation for this in terms of, like, doing the research and writing the script, so I wasn't, like, really focusing. And it was just kind of this light, folksy thing that just kind of washed over me and, like... That was more or less, it's like, oh, it's a 60s record, or 70s record. This could be boring, or this could be really awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just folk music washing over me, and it's not, like, about labor agitation or anything. So, you know, <laughs> ho-hum. But when I sat down and actually, like, paid attention to it when we were listening to it the other day, I, I will say there were a couple really standout tracks. Uh, Sister Golden Hair was one of them. Ventura Highway was really Absolutely. good. 
obviously the horse with no name is very good, despite it being written by Willie Nelson. Oh my god, don't spread lies. <laughs> it was not written, it was written by them. Uh, but there were, there were a couple on here that I, I genuinely enjoyed. Oh, Sandman, I think. Yeah. That was yeah. good. I always have to give shout outs to the rhythm section and they've got good bass lines on here and everything. One of the things that a lot of those bands like that I was talking about, like that they have in common, especially if they're technically adept musicians, mm -hmm. is that you kind of paint yourself into a corner because if you make something that's like really well done and you have these really tight harmonies mm -hmm. and it's all very easily digestible music it's also just so easily digestible that people are just yeah. like ah oh, this is pleasant i am not paying attention to it yeah yeah and any of the songs on this album even muskrat love i'm sure i have bopped along to it in a store more than once not even paying any attention <laughs> Which is, of course, you know, the argument that when they get into the later stages of their career, they start sliding into the easy listening space. Yes. Which... So I think a lot of people know them more as if they even acknowledge that you know them or like they'll know like right. Horse with No Name and just be like, oh, yeah, that plays on right. the easy listening station or whatever. Well, that would be oldies. The oldies. Or I've, I've heard it playing in a store yeah. where it's been in like on movie soundtracks, right. things like that. I don't think there is much, especially amongst millennials and younger, yeah. really a household name. No, they, they kind of slipped off the cool list and haven't really been revived. I'm really bummed that I did not know about them getting chummy with Adam, Adam Schlesinger and a bunch of bands that yeah. I was like really into at the time, too. Like well, I, I, We should talk about the song. The center of that album for me, which is not this album, but it's in the show notes. Go, go <laughs> They're um, a cover album from 2005. It's not covers. It's a lot of original music. But there's one cover, which is their cover of Always Love by Not A Surf, yes. which is just a very trippy experience. We're both really big fans of Not A Surf, and <laughs> me getting into Not A Surf was caused by you. So, <laughs> welcome. Always Love is like their big song post indie career, I guess is the best way to say it. Well, like, yeah, if people know them from the 90s because of popular, popular most of those people probably didn't stay continuous right. fans of theirs, especially because of. There being a gap because what happened to them happened to every yeah. band in the 90s who got screwed by their record label. <laughs> but Always Love is like kind of a standard for Not yeah. a Surf. And so. It was a fairly new song for them in 2005. I guess, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But yeah, so the, the fact that it got covered by America in 2005 is pretty cool. It's super cool. But it's, it's just really trippy to have because they don't make too many stylistic changes to the song. There's a little bit in the rhythm section that's more easy listening, as opposed to Not A Surf's, like, super melodic, yeah. tuneful music, but with a punk drummer. <laughs> yeah, well, and they do a lot of harmonizing. There's even yeah. more on their recordings, because they, they do layering of, of things, but... but yeah, yeah I, I would say that I... <laughs> Having a... You played that for me without telling me that this happened. Yes, yes. It was a surprise for It everybody. was a surprise, and I kind of wish you had <laughs> recorded my reaction. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no way that I could fully express again how odd of an experience that yeah. was as... Like you said, like, you know, being a, a fan of both groups and not knowing that they even were, had been recording stuff yeah. again. I don't know that they've done anything since then. Yes. They have? Oh, that's yes. cool. Yes. After, after you shared that with me, I found out they they did a second album of, like, collaborations with other oh, artists, including the Bob Dylan cover. Oh, uh, but, right, yeah. Um... <laughs> Link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you listen to the recording 
of Always Love. Like, it is very obvious on that recording, especially how it almost sounds like somebody who isn't a native English speaker. Right, yes. Recording it because, you know, he has such a such a distinctive yeah. way of singing and... Got very crisp enunciation. Yeah, and and it's especially noticeable when it's not something that that he wrote for yeah for himself. himself and and again like singing a song matthew cause has a very distinctive way of singing yeah. and when other people cover his songs it kind of highlights those distinctive things that you wouldn't necessarily hear because they're just consistent throughout all of their songs you start playing Always Love, and I'm like, it almost sounded like somebody who is like a native Spanish speaker singing. Yeah, I can see that. In English, because of the pronunciations of certain like vowels and, and things like that, my own personal background in right. cool. like, studying Spanish and oh, yeah. being like immersed in that kind of that world that I was just like, oh, you know, maybe he's playing me some Central American bands that, <laughs> <laughs> that love to not a surf and, and put out this album. For some reason, while we're listening to America. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was tired. <laughs> One thing that struck me while listening to them, I was just glancing at my notes. They are very California, and there might be a, a Spanish influence there somehow. They're very West Coast in general, and it'd be interesting to know where their parents were from. I don't think they were from California before they, you know, were stationed to bases in England. But I don't know. There's just something inseparably California about even this album, which was mostly stuff recorded in England. The fact that they ended up moving to L.A. is, like, not surprising even slightly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I didn't really know much of their history or anything. I just knew their music. And they climbed higher on my list of bands who get respect mm -hmm. <laughs> because of the last Unicorn soundtrack. So oh, if yeah, you want to yeah. talk about that. I did not know until I was looking things up after you you asked me to talk about them that it wasn't all like their original music it was mostly just recording things that had been written for, oh, okay. for the the movie anybody who hasn't seen the last unicorn it is a perfect encapsulation of the fever dream that was the late 70s and early 80s <laughs> it was a uh, it was bakshi right uh, yes. the animation yeah, yeah so like... for those of you who aren't aware just Pause this and go on YouTube and look up some Ralph Bakshi animation. He specialized in rotoscoping, which is drawing over, like, filming something and then drawing the cells for animation over the frames. So you can, you know, have someone, like, in a normal costume. It's, it's a lot of what CGI does now automatically, but looks like crap. Because... It's, but it's, it's very uncanny value. Oh, it super crap. is. Yeah, the way people move is very... The, the it, way that... It's like if you videotaped somebody, but at like 10 frames a second instead yeah. of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just really... Yeah. And the, it's, the movements it's are just... choppy. There's a lot of like repeated... I, I mean, I'm just thinking of the... We're really selling it, huh? <laughs> the animated Hobbit yeah. that he did where just like... There's just like the same clip of... Yeah. The dwarves and Bilbo running, right? <laughs> like with yeah. their capes flapping, and they're just like running and they're I mean, going so to that, the left and right of the street. Th that gets to a big aspect of Ralph Bakshi's career is that he never got proper funding for his projects, and part of that was that you know he couldn't write a script to get out of a hole in the ground. One of his best funded ones before Last Unicorn was Fire and Ice. The movie is glorious; it is absolutely stunning, and the story is. Barely decipherable. <laughs> but Last Unicorn was properly funded. Someone else wrote the damn script because it was based on a book that's also amazing and you should all look up. Absolutely. And of course, the music was done by America. And having done the research for this episode, it makes sense that it was that era of America's career. It's super prog. Yes. 
it's like the corner of prog rock where people were doing concept albums about fairies. Yeah. It's very much that. It's that corner of prog rock that's not. It's like there's the Pink Floyd side of prog rock, which I find irritating, as you all know. I know, but I do. And then there's the, the part of prog rock that's just like, hey, guys, what if we wrote an entire album about how I'm a robot? And I find that endearing, even if some of the music is awful. I think I didn't know that America was the source of all of the music in, in The Last right. Unicorn until... I was trying to find some of the songs from the movie after going off to college and finding people who had never seen or heard of the movie and being like, we all are. And that's one of my favorite movies. You sit down and you watch that immediately. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that there's a pretty big disconnect. If you were familiar with just this era of America in the, the classic era, if you just heard the Glass Unicorn soundtrack, you probably wouldn't necessarily know you were listening to the same band. I mean, when you're, you when you're watching the, yeah, when you're watching the movie, one of the, oh, it, it the opening, it, like, the opening yeah. credit, it's like a full screen yeah. plate that with says, America. with music by the band America. That's and... what your kids are all listening to these days, right? <laughs> it's 1982. Is it 1982? <laughs> yeah, it was, it wasn't. It was in the 80s. I'm pretty sure it was 1982. There is a giant spider on the wall behind you. Neat. If you want a good idea of the kind of stuff that I grew up listening to, it was anything by the Beatles and then anything you would find on the Forrest Gump soundtrack. Right. Yeah. I actually had that in my notes that like if it oh, wasn't on so the funny. if it wasn't on the Forrest Gump soundtrack, it's a complete blank for me in the sixties and seventies. It's funny. Uh, although that's not entirely true because I have subsequently gotten into some psychedelic proto punk stuff. But yeah, like when you trace back people's musical influences yeah. and and things like that, you're gonna find a lot of that kind of stuff and. I don't know if a lot of people would, like, specifically single out America as, like... Well, Adam Schlesinger would have. I I think there's a place in the world for artfully done pop music. And for people like Schlesinger, who made that their art, people like America definitely had a place. And even, like, specifically, like, making soundtrack music and things like oh, yeah. that. He, he did a lot of that. He yeah. did a lot of like show tune style yeah. music for television shows. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming here today. I think we've, we've covered everything we need to cover. This was fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> Tell me you'll come back. I I live here. Oh, right. So take the opportunity to say I I don't know if it has come up in other episodes that I I haven't like particularly noted it in your other episodes, but um one of Ben's favorite sayings like referring to something as like sure that's great, but it's great because it's amongst things that are also mediocre. He's calling it Disco's Greatest Hits. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we're like going to get to that. Mashing together two things that he finds particularly odious that are Greatest Hits albums <laughs> and Disco. I have to say, actually, that I didn't come up with that line. I, I understand, it's, but it's from it Larry is... Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe. But it is part of your brand because of those two things coming together. And obviously this is not a disco album, but... (laughs) Thank God they didn't do that. I I am sure (laughs) that wherever I did make this purchase, I'm sure you rolled your eyes. (laughs) They're like, a greatest hits record, really? (laughs) And on that note, let's wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. This was fun. This was this was uh, 
It was a time. (laughs) (laughs) In wrapping this up, I will be honest. I did not expect to find this episode so interesting. A lot more that I could bring up in this episode, like a long overdue monologue on the nature of the genre of folk music in the American context, but there are probably better albums to discuss that on, and we are already running pretty long. So I think we will wrap it up here. Dai, thanks so much for doing this with me. I had a lot of fun. Hopefully everyone out there other than Andrew had fun as well. Hopefully we can have you back if there are other records close to your heart in the collection, but not for a little while, lest Andrew follow through on his death threats. Incidentally, of me? Of me. Thank God. Incidentally, this concludes the original run of scripts that I first wrote when I was sketching out this show. This is kind of a landmark moment. Let's celebrate together by going back to our normal format. Next up, we have, let's see here, Oedipus Rex by Stravinsky, as conducted by Carl Ankerl and performed by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra. Cool. That sounds like fun. Well, be sure to check the show notes so you can listen ahead to that and listen to all the weird stuff that actually came up in this episode, including that newer album by America and probably some stuff from the last Unicorn soundtrack and definitely a track or two from their weird synth pop album that was so bad that I haven't even played it for die yet. But in any case... All that stuff's down in the show notes, so check that out. And with all that said, all that remains for me is to thank you all for listening and to give you my sincerest hope that you find the answers you seek in your record collection. Uh, yeah, you're you're gonna play the drums very differently if you're you know on psychedelics to <laughs> versus speed. <laughs> 